Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Timon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Slater Koch, Executive Editor. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. In this week's podcast, the biopharma world last week was dominated by FDA's controversial decision to approve Biogen's Alzheimer's drug aducanumab. The BioCentury team spoke to dozens of stakeholders about a host of ramifications for the decision. From the impact on public trust in FDA, a potential boon for investors in neurodegeneration, to how it may alter the development strategies of other companies working in the space going forward. Steve, I know you've got a lot on your mind thinking about the fallout for this decision. So where would you like to start? Well, one of the things I want to start with, I think this might not be a popular view, but I think that the response from investors who think that the approval opens the door to accelerated approvals for other neurodegenerative conditions is overly optimistic. Cedar director Patrizia Cavazzoni portrayed the approval as opening the door to accelerated approvals of other neurotreatments. Scott Gottlieb told me that he was talking about this in 2018, but this wasn't a carefully considered decision to base approval on a well-validated surrogate marker. It looks more like FDA was determined to approve aducanumab come hell or high water. When the advisory committee made it difficult to do it based on clinical outcomes, they reached for accelerated approval. Billy Dunn, the head of FDA's Office of Neuroscience, wrote that accelerated approval wasn't on the table when the adcom met in November. In fact, he said at the meeting that FDA wasn't considering it. Then a few months later, with no public discussion or debate, that's what the basis for approval of a drug that could be given to millions of people. So there's something that motivated FDA to sweep away all the uncertainties, to bend its own rules. And I, I don't think that's generalizable to other drugs, at least it shouldn't be. Maybe there is going to be a path forward for accelerated approval of other neurodegenerative disorders, but I don't think that this is actually the turning point that FDA officials are trying to portray it as. I think it's almost a smokescreen to try to distract attention from the extraordinary nature of this decision. Steve, one thing that's interesting in a way is that the reality may actually not be that important in as much as the investors will invest in what they believe in. So if FDA has made these statements and investors think that there is a path to accelerated approval, there's a certain window in which that might bear out. We've actually already seen in the last few years before this, more and more investment going into neurodegeneration. So they are quite optimistic that this will happen. I'll tell you a couple of things I heard. One is that this is a quote, but I I can't tell you who it's from, but this idea that FDA seems to be just approving things based on the idea it's safe enough and we'll leave it to payers to figure out efficacy. That was what one person told me, and they were not appreciative of that. They didn't think that was a good thing. And I'll say that investors are not necessarily saying they think this was a good decision, What they're saying is FDA is now on record as saying it wants to have more accelerated approvals in neurodegeneration and see what that pathway did for oncology do for neurodegeneration. And so there is this idea that maybe FDA just said, look, enough of no progress in neurodegeneration. We have to do something. Yeah. And I think that maybe you can think that there's going to be a lot of progress that's going to be buoyed on the clouds of irrational exuberance here. I, I don't. I think that reality actually does matter. And I don't think that this is a generalizable decision that's going to lead to similar decisions 
about other diseases. I don't think that, for example, in ALS, if I know that there's already pressure from the ALS community to say, well, they got a drug approved based on an endpoint that actually hasn't been shown to be reasonably likely to demonstrate to be predictive of clinical benefit. Why don't you do it for us? I don't think that FDA is going to do that. I think that this was an extraordinary decision, a one-off decision, and it's not really going to set the kind of precedent that people think it is. And I certainly don't think it's going to set a precedent for approving drugs based on on very incomplete data and just hoping for the best once they've gotten on the market. Well, I agree with that last statement about the incomplete data, but let's turn to Selena because you've been speaking to people, Selena, who are in the amyloid field, sort of direct competitors, if you want to call them competitors, and how FDA has now said that amyloid is a surrogate. So it can't walk back that and say, well, it was for Biogen, but it isn't for the others. So Selena, how do the people you've been speaking to see this? Yeah, I think they mostly come down on the same side as Steve there. They think amyloid is a unique case, but they'll defend FDA's decision and say, okay, look, you can go back through history and you can look at all the big phase threes of amyloid lowering agents that failed, solanuzumab, vapinuzumab, all the base inhibitors, cronuzumab, the gamma secretase inhibitors, and so on. But if you look at more recent data and earlier stage data, such as Lilly's denonimab or the phase 2b data, not the primary endpoint for Azai's um, band 2401, but the 18-month data, those look good. And so there are things you can point to out there in the literature from multiple agents, from multiple companies that could support amyloid as a surrogate endpoint. And they're saying, that's the standard you need, right? You need multiple agents across trials, across companies. FDA didn't really bend its rules, and it's not going to bend them in the future either. That said, there's clearly some confusion and uncertainty around it, because then later, many folks will say, oh, but maybe, maybe they'll use, they probably won't use tau right now as a surrogate endpoint. But on the other hand, if you look at the eMERGE data from Biogen, there are correlations between tau and cognitive benefit. So it's not out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> so I think people just don't, they don't know. Their initial reaction is we're going to have to show cognitive benefit, but then there's a lot of uncertainty around the edges. I would take issue with the question of whether FDA bent its rules here. I, I think it clearly did. And I think one of the ways that it did is that the advisory committee told FDA that there wasn't solid evidence of clinical benefit. And if you have a situation where you have a surrogate that hasn't been validated, that is positive, and then you have clinical benefit that isn't borne out by clinical data, the clinical data should be dispositive. That's what should be more important than the surrogate data. And that's the way that FDA has operated. Wasn't Pazda, though, saying that there is an analogy with oncology? So what he said is, it's clear that there is a biological effect of these drugs on removing amyloid much as you see tumors shrinkage with certain oncology drugs, and that it meets the standard in the same way as many of those drugs meet the standard, even though they haven't necessarily shown improvement in overall survival, or it doesn't track with it. So he was saying that FDA was consistent. He thinks that there's overall a a problem with the way the law is written. But he actually was, I think, saying that it met the standard that FDA meets in cancer. So do you disagree with that? Yeah, I disagree with it. And the reason I do is because the other thing that Dr. Pazner has been saying very consistently for several years 
is that FDA isn't approving cancer drugs based really on surrogate endpoints. They're approving cancer drugs based on early clinical endpoints, on interim clinical endpoints or early clinical endpoints. Shrinking a tumor, that's something that is meaningful to a patient in, it, in itself. And then there's an argument about whether or not that's going to actually lead to overall survival. Eliminating amyloid plaque isn't meaningful to patients. The only way it would be meaningful is if it predicts clinical benefit, if it actually predicts a change in the disease. And FDA and Biogen haven't pointed to solid data demonstrating that is actually the case. They hope it's the case, they believe it's the case, but they haven't shown it. So there's a fundamental difference, I think, between using response rates in cancer or progression-free survival in cancer and what's something which really is intended to be a surrogate. It's not an interim clinical endpoint. I actually want to emphasize something both for myself and for the people I've spoken to. Selena may speak differently, and Stephen, you spoke to Roche and Lily, and I expect they didn't say anything about this decision. Most of the people I've spoken to don't think it was a great decision, don't think the science is there to back it up, don't think the FDA did something that is good for Alzheimer's disease patients with this decision. Their optimistic view is more in terms of what it means for the future. And as we've talked about that, they're either right or they're wrong, whether maybe FDA paints itself in a corner or not. But I think across the industry, there's still a fair amount of shock about this and then about the pricing. So Stephen, Lily and Roche, it looks like from your story, they're like, we're just business as usual. Yeah, and I wanted to bring this up to address one of Steve's earlier comments around the potential for this to be to just open up the floodgates for companies chasing the surrogate endpoint. And at least for these late stage assets, that's not really going to be the case because there's still an incentive for them to get a clinical benefit endpoint to be able to show a clinical benefit. Because you know, if you think about it now, if you have Aduhelm on the market, but it has a label with amyloid lowering, but no label showing clinical benefit. If you're able to actually show that in these clinical trials for gantineuromab or denenumab, you would think that you would have a clear commercial advantage, right? Being able to have a label that can claim clinical benefits, both with payers and with physicians. So there's still a clear incentive for them to continue with their trials as they are and to try and pursue that primary endpoint of showing clinical benefit, but with, I guess, maybe the knowledge of knowing that you know, if we're able to reproduce some of the amyloid lowering data that we've shown in previous trials and our clinical data isn't crystal clear, showing, you know, showing a very clear benefit, there still might be an opportunity for them, albeit maybe on the same par as Adekanumab have. I think at least as of right now, there's still plenty of reason for these companies to still chase that clinical route and not just fall back on an accelerated approval pathway as being the best way forward. I would certainly hope that they do. And I think that we're not going to get out of this morass until somebody's shown actual clinical benefit and what the scale of the clinical benefit is. The other thing I think that's going to be really interesting and important is to see what regulators in other countries do with the same data set. If I had to guess, I would guess that they'll reject it. And I think one, one person I asked said, what do you think the chances of this getting approved in Europe and elsewhere are? The answer was zilch. Yeah, um, I think it's a debate. Of, is it zero or 1%? It's very unlikely to happen. And and I think that in some ways that will be a repudiation well, of FDA. Yeah, which we can get to in a minute. But let me ask 
Selena and maybe Stephen. Selena, in the scenario that Lily or Roche come up with, you know, at least data, let's put it like this, data that's better than aducanumab really does show improvement in cognitive benefits. Let's put it like that. Do you think they just wipe aducanumab off the map, like for treatment scenarios? No, I think Stephen's right. I think they will have a, a definite commercial advantage. Gantanurumab is being tested as a subcutaneous treatment and it's trials, right? So that's right. much less burdensome than the monthly IV. Taking Alzheimer's patients into the clinic month after month for a three-hour infusion, that's a big burden on caregivers. So yeah, if it shows a cognitive improvement, that alone is enough to give right. them an edge. But then in addition, they have the sub-Q. That's good. Denonumab in its phase two trial already produced clinical benefits that were the same magnitude as aducanumab. And it's an IV, so they're more similar, maybe. I would agree. I would think if price and the side effect profile all being equal there, if you get a clinical benefit, I don't see why a physician or from the payer perspective, why a payer would not give preferential treatment to something that's actually shown a clinical benefit over aducanumab. Well, I think there are going to be two things. One is that the U.S. market for pharmaceuticals has got a lot of perverse incentives in it. It's got a lot of ways that companies can persuade physicians and patients to do things that may not be in their best interests, but are in the, the best interests of the companies. And there are other tools that, that companies can use to move market share in their direction. The other thing I would question is, if the companies that have uh, biomarker-based Alzheimer's treatments that show very modest benefits aren't in some ways shooting themselves in the foot commercially because they will have um, defined a smaller population than what's on the aducanumab label. And they will also have defined a modest benefit. With aducanumab, it's all comers. And um, since the benefit isn't defined, anybody can imagine it to be whatever they want. So you're saying that you actually think that those advantages will keep in competition, even if the other drugs actually show a better cognitive benefit in the clinical trials? I'm saying I wouldn't rule it out. Well, maybe what Biogen keeps in are the more advanced patients, like the ones that weren't part of its trial population, but somehow ended up on its label. Whereas all of the other amyloid agents, they're going after a similar population as was in Biogen's trials, this early stage MCI type biomarker defined population. Maybe they end up getting those patients and Biogen takes advantage of the wider label to, to get the rest. The other thing, I guess, the question is how quickly could any of these follow-ons get onto the market? I think that the way that Biogen has priced aducanumab, there's going to be a significant, well, certainly there's going to be a significant return for them and there's going to be a significant impact on, on the healthcare sector during the run-up to approval, potential approval of any competitive products. Selena, what's the timeline for when we can see readouts for um, next year. Any of the com competitors. It's, it's really, it's coming next year for gantanurumab and then denetumab, I think, is it the year after Selena, I believe? Mm, yeah, 2020. But if you just look at the at how much Lily's market cap moved just on the Biogen approval, it was what, 23 billion, 20 something billion? Lily and Roche, they're going to move as quick as they can, right? If they get anything positive. Yeah, so. Roche is guided to enemy submission next year. Yeah, so it could be fairly, yeah, I mean fairly quick. I have to say that when I saw the eight or nine year timeline that Biogen has for its confirmatory trial, it, it almost puts it in what should be irrelevant in terms of if it gets withdrawn from the market, you'd really hope by eight or nine years time, there'd be alternatives that it being remaining on the market or being removed from the market wouldn't have that big an impact. And 
I would even argue that if that is not the case, then we're really in trouble. If in eight or nine years time, this is still the only thing out there, that's really bad news. <laughs> well, on, on that timeline, the thing I was thinking about that I was wondering about is, while, while that is the timeline that the FDA has laid out in their letter, if gantanirumab does show clinical benefit next year, I mean, that gives Biogen an incentive to, to really expedite that follow-up trial, actually, and to be able to try and show a clinical benefit, because otherwise, they may be at a disadvantage then. And so I wonder whether that would actually hasten that timeline, but should you have other antibodies that actually show a benefit? That's a really interesting thing, Stephen, because I have seen companies not want to do the trial or slow walk a trial that might produce negative results. I've heard board members, this is not Biogen at all, just generally across the industry, people are always wary of a trial that might adversely affect their product. So you would certainly hope that it's in everybody's interest to get that trial done sooner rather than later, but who knows? Well, I think that's probably all the time we have for Atacanumab this week. Who knows? I'm sure it'll be a, a continuing theme for us over going forward here, given all of the, uh, the different areas of interest. Finally, we have this week's deal in focus, where today GSK and ITOS Therapeutics announced one of the largest ever deals in amino oncology to co-develop ITOS's anti-tigit antibody. BioCentury's Lauren Martz has the analysis up already on the deal in which GSK paid a staggering $625 million up front, plus up to $1.5 billion in development and commercial milestones, while ITOS retains 50% of U.S. profits and tiered royalties on ex-U.S. sales. There's very little data available yet for the phase one antibody, and none in combination with a PD-1 or PDL one inhibitor, which Lauren notes reflects the high value that industry is placing on new checkpoint inhibitors showing rare signs of promise. That's all the time we have for today. Coming soon on biocentury.com from Steve Usden is a discussion with acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.